and welcome, I think, to the Frogs War podcast. Uh, I'm Jamie Plunkett. I feel like we should say hello again, and I am still Melissa Troopwasser. This is true. This is true. We've experienced uh, some technical difficulties trying to even get the podcast started on this lovely yeah. Wednesday night. Um, Ringer is being a little finicky, and my laptop is being a little finicky, which means that I am now recording this on my phone, which is probably why I sound like I'm talking on a cell phone right now, because I, I am doing that. This, these are true statements, but it's okay because the delays have allowed you time to, you know, drink more bourbon. This is also true because, Melissa, after a game like TCU basketball had tonight, which I had texted to me by multiple people, was just kind of the epitome of TCU basketball this season. Uh, one needs a little bit of bourbon to calm one's nerves after that episode. This is true, and it's really been that kind of season for TCU. And when you are down to seven healthy players um, and, and not getting a lot of consistency, then it's going to lend to being a season that requires an exorbitant amount of alcoholic uh, stimulation or calming. So one cannot blame a TCU fan for looking to the drink this evening. This is true because uh, for those of you that – I guess didn't watch the basketball game, which I don't understand why you wouldn't have done that. Um, TCU defeated Oklahoma state 73 to 70 to advance to the next round of the big 12 tournament. Um, more importantly, it had a major impact, I think on TCU standing for an NCAA tournament bid, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, Melissa, this wasn't always a close game. I know that you were out at dinner uh, watching the game with some friends. I was sitting at home uh, by myself, extraordinarily stressed out uh, for the last 10 minutes or so. But the first 30 minutes of the basketball game were great. TCU jumped out to a huge lead. Uh, they were up by uh, nine, as much as 19 in the first half, 41 to 22. Uh, Kwat Noy had 14 um, first half points. Kevin Samuel got the ball a lot in the first half. He finished with 12 first half points. And TCU led by 45 to 29 at halftime shooting 58% from the floor, 50% from three, and holding Oklahoma State um, to sub-40% shooting, and they out-rebounded the Pokes 22-10. to 10. It was like as dominant a first half of TCU basketball as we have seen from this team in more than two months. I mean, really, more dominant first half than anything we've seen maybe since the USC game. Mm -hmm. Back in, what was that, early December, late November? Yeah, um, that, yeah. So, I mean, this was just an absolute dominant half by TC basketball right out of the gate. And then in the second half, they frittered it away. They were leading by as many as 21 points. And over the course of about 12 minutes of the second half, they watched Oklahoma state just hack away, hack away, hack away, hack away. Um, before making a layup with about, 50 seconds left in the game to tie it. And then Lindy Waters makes two free throws with about 25 seconds left to put Oklahoma State ahead for the first time in the entire game, 70 to 68. And then Desmond Bain steps up, does what he does, drills a three with about 14 seconds left, put TCU up one. Frogs get the rebound off a missed shot by Lindy Waters. 
Alex Robinson makes two free throws with 0.9 seconds left. Frogs escape 73 to 70. Melissa, as you were watching this game, what were your thoughts in the first half compared to your thoughts in the second half? Well, the first thing that stood out to me is that Quatnoy came out aggressive. And within the first two minutes of the game, I believe had outscored himself over the last two games combined. Um, getting shut out uh, two two weeks ago or a week ago, and then coming back and having, I believe, just four points against Texas. And so yes. his Inouye first two shots, out, he outscored yeah, himself. Hit, hit his yeah. First, yeah, hit his first two three-pointers. Um, and, and that was huge for a couple of reasons. Number one, when Noy's scoring in double digits, he sees a much better basketball team. And also coming off of the game that Bain had against Texas, being able to say, hey, you can't just focus your defense on this one guy. I think that really set the tone for the TCU offense. I love the pace that they played at. Uh, it was up and down, and, and I feel like they thought they had a clear advantage playing at that pace over Oklahoma State, which has had as many uh, just warm body issues as the Frogs have had. But mm-hmm. it was very clear to me that they ran out of gas in the second half. And, and this is something that we've kind of noticed is that the Frogs, it's not the first time TCU's jumped out to a big first-half lead and then had to hang on to dear life. And, in fact, it's not the first time they've done so against Oklahoma State. Um, but if you had told me that the Frogs were going to go into halftime with a near 20-point lead and that Oklahoma State was only going to shoot 25% from three in the second half, there's no way I would have expected this thing to be tied in the final minute. Um, that's what I'm having a hard time understanding. And, and I get what Jamie Dixon is struggling with. When you only have seven healthy players, the temptation is to slow things down, to use the clock, to run down the shot clock, and try to, to maximize the rest opportunities. But anytime the Frogs have gone away from what's working in that regard, they have struggled down the stretch. And they were literally holding on for dear life. And, and thank goodness for Desmond Bain didn't have the massive game that he had on Saturday, but still scored 15 points, 10 of them in the second half. And, and as he's been prone to do in Kansas City, made a huge shot down the stretch to ensure a TCU win. He did. He did. And it's, I mean, it's exactly what you said. This team was so worn out. In the last 10 minutes, uh, they played ultimately six guys in this game. Kendrick Davis only played five minutes. Most of those minutes were in the first, I think four of those minutes were in the first half. And in those minutes, he really struggled from the floor. He turned the ball over. He didn't look confident. Um, and so ultimately, in a, in a survive in advance or lose and go home situation, you've got to put guys on the floor that are going to execute. And he wasn't getting it done in those five minutes. So he sat for most of the game, you had then uh, six guys who played uh, significant minutes. RJ Nemhard came off the bench for 20, and then every starter for TCU played at least 31. Um, that's a lot to ask from your starting five. Uh, Alex Robinson didn't have a great shooting night, um, but he, he had eight assists and six rebounds to go with 12 points. And two free throws at the very end of the game helped steal the win for the Frogs as well. Um you know, this is one of those games where you can't question, and we've been saying this for a couple months now, Melissa, you can't question the heart on this thing. I mean, these guys have been giving it every single thing that they have. Uh, they've been draining the tank every single night, regardless of outcome. Um, and so I called out a person on Twitter tonight who was asking if these guys even care, because that's such a crap thing to ask about a team that's so clearly giving it everything they've got. When you're playing with six guys at this level, yeah, there are going to be stretches in the game where they look exhausted. You saw it in the end of the first half, too, where there was a three-minute stretch where the Frogs didn't score. They looked a little bit out of sorts. They were trying to slow things down on offense. And part of that was so they could catch their freaking breath. 
And in the second half of a game like this, you just don't have a chance to catch your breath unless your coach is wasting timeouts. And Dixon wasn't doing that because he knew that they had a big cushion uh, to work with. And so, uh, you know, there's there's no question that this team has all of the heart that, that you need. And there's no question that they're going to give it everything they've got every single night. So to, to ask uh, if this team even cares is is a pretty weak stance to take, I think, at this point in time. Well, well, it's something that people that have never played at a high level of sports say because they don't understand. Like, I, I don't want to be that guy, but um, only fans who have never really played high-level competitive sports say things like that because they're the only people that can assume that you would go out and put in the kind of work that it takes to be a Division One athlete if you don't care. Uh, you, you, do, you do college sports strictly because you do care. This isn't the, the pro leagues. This isn't leaving a winning program to go, uh, get a bigger paycheck somebody somewhere else. This is that you commit to a university, um, because you do want to develop yourself and you believe they'll develop you, but also you, you, you love the place that you play. And I think we saw that there's a great interview that Drew Davison did with Desmond Bain talking about why he chose TCU. And, mm-hmm. and we've heard this from a lot of guys is, is that they came to a place because they saw a place that hadn't done much and that they believed they were undervalued as well and they wanted to put themselves and their school on the map. And and I think that's what we've seen tonight is a perfect example of that, is that there's not a lot left in the tank for these guys that have been playing all of these minutes. And when you look at Alex, like I, I cannot deal with the people who are saying that Alex Robinson isn't good enough to carry this team. The dude is 5'11", maybe six foot. He weighs maybe a buck 65, and he's playing probably averaging 36 to 37 minutes a game, especially mm-hmm. over the last month of the season. He is physically worn down, and he is the focal point of other of opponents' defenses because they know that when Alex isn't getting penetration, wasn't making plays for other people, that's how you beat TCU. And so he has got to be just physically completely worn out. It's not that he's playing poorly. It's that he just doesn't have it. And that's to be expected when you go through the kind of season that these guys have been through. So uh, it, it's not it's not a great win, but it's a win. And at this point in March, that's all that matters. Nobody is counting style points at this point in the season. They just want to see Ws. And uh, to see Kevin Samuel play the, play the way he did the first half of the season, to see the way R.J. Nemhard has come on over the last couple of weeks, uh, you, you've got to you've got to want to see this team get to the next level and see what they can do in the tournament because. They may not have a whole lot left, but they will give it 100% everything that they have. They absolutely will. They absolutely will. You're right. And I think, too, uh, that you know, we've, we've become spoiled very quickly with this thing. And I know that you've talked a lot about how this is still kind of the early building phase of, of a good basketball program. Uh, and so that there needs to be some patience on the, on the part of the fans. And I totally agree with that. This is the first time now that TCU basketball has won 20 games in a row or 20 games in three consecutive seasons uh, since 1996 through 1999. So it's been, what's that, 20 years since yeah, they had... Let's be careful had... about saying that's been forever because somebody on this podcast was a student for at least a couple of those years. It's fine. <laughs> Everything is fine. I was entering... Uh, never mind. Anyways... Uh, I was I was like ten when that streak started. It's fine, I you. but <laughs> but uh, so they've won they've won twenty games in three consecutive seasons for the first time since ninety six through uh, ninety nine. They're positioning themselves to likely get a second consecutive NCAA tournament bid for the first time since the early fifties. 
I was not a student for that. No, you weren't. You were not even a twinkle in your parents' eyes at that point. Yes. Uh, and so just for context, it's been 65 years or something. I don't, I can't do math, but I think it's been like 65, 66 years since TCU has made consecutive NCAA tournaments and they've positioned themselves to do that. So let's look at the larger picture here and just kind of appreciate how hard these guys have fought to get to this point through all of this attrition. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a work in progress and assuming that Jamie Dixon is in it for the long haul, um, which I think most of us do on some level believe uh, then, then the, the future is really, really bright in Fort Worth that they have a great place to play. They've developed fan support. They're recruiting at an incredibly high level. Uh, there's plenty to be excited about going forward, regardless of, of when and how this season ends. Uh, but making the tournament back to back years would be a huge, huge accomplishment for TCU and continue to build a lot of positive momentum going forward. Um, there's a long way to go, but. It's very, very rare that you see a team have a single breakout season without a couple of years building up to it. And this isn't like a, a George Mason or Florida Gulf Coast or a mid-major getting hot at the right time. Jamie Dixon is trying to build a program and to be a team where making the tournament annually is the expectation mm-hmm. and winning games in the tournament becomes a regularity. And, and that's that's going to be the hard thing about this is the Frogs are very likely going to make the NCAA tournament, but what kind of seed they're going to have, what kind of matchup they're going to have is probably not going to be ultimately favorable. Um, and and that, that's kind of the, the rough spot that we're in is if they get in and they're one and done again, um, you know, how are fans going to react to that? Because as we've continued to learn that most of our fans have very quickly um, made it clear that, that they still don't know a whole lot about uh, basketball and basketball postseason. So we have a little work to do in that regard as TCU fan base. I definitely agree. Um, so before we get in, we're going to talk bracketology in just a second because there are some things to pay attention to in the days moving ahead. Um, but TCU's win on Wednesday night over Oklahoma State means that they play on Thursday against top seeded Kansas State in the next round of the Big 12 tournament at 1.30 in the afternoon. So it's a quick turnaround uh, for the Frogs. They, I think I tweeted it. I hope they're getting dinner hydrating and going directly to bed because they need all of the rest that they can get between now and tomorrow morning uh, to, to prepare for Kansas state. The, the Wildcats will be without Wade, uh, Dean Wade. Uh, he tweaked his foot, uh, I guess in the last game of the regular season uh, for Kansas state. And so that is a big loss because Dean Wade is incredible and the leader of that thing. And without him, they are a different squad. Um, so maybe the TCU has a chance if they get rested up tomorrow to, to knock off Kansas state. That would be pretty cool. And I think that yeah. would, that would validate a lot of what these guys have worked so hard for this season in the midst of everything. It also would not be the first time that TCU has knocked off number one seed in the big 12 tournament from Ooh. a state that is a Kansas state as well. So uh, I, I think, you know, this is a very, very different team without uh, Dean Wade. And, and from what I understand that the injury is something that he could play through, but with their NCAA seed all but locked up as, as Big 12 champions, there's really no need to play them. And in some regards, it probably benefits uh, Kansas State to see more Big 12 teams get in. And so I don't think we'll see an unmotivated Wildcat team tomorrow, but I think TCU obviously has more to play for. The question is, is with about a 16-hour turnaround, 
will they have enough or will my premonitions uh, continue to come through um, with, with how I saw this week going. So I, I was, I was really close. We almost had the overtime game that I predicted uh, this evening come, come to fruition. Uh, so hopefully I'm wrong about predicting my uh, last minute final, final minute collapse tomorrow um, against a really, really good Kansas state team. Yeah, I think uh, it's all about how much these guys have in the tank in the, in the second half on t- Thursday afternoon. So we'll see. I mean, yeah. they've, they've given it everything they've got to this point. And when it comes to be tournament time, you just got to push that exhaustion out of your mind and, and fight to the very end. So yeah, see what happens. It'll, you know that they're going to compete regardless of outcome. And that's nice to know. Yeah, for sure. Um, but let's talk, let's talk, let's dive into uh, tournament stuff for a second here because uh, the frogs, I, there was a, something that came out on Wednesday afternoon that essentially talked about um, likelihood of TCU making the tournament based on the outcome of the game against Oklahoma State on Wednesday night. And it said that TCU had an 80 to 86% chance of, advan- of getting a tournament bid if they beat Oklahoma State. And it, that chance of making a, uh, getting a bid dropped to about 5%, maybe a little less than 5% if they lost. So they won. And so theoretically now they have about an 80 to 85% chance of making the tournament. They were last four in, uh, according to the athletic and ESPN going into the day. Uh, they were a 10 seed, uh, according to CBS Sports going into the day, which I think was a little generous. Um, mm-hmm. thank you, Jerry Palm, though. We'll take that all day, every day. <laughs> uh, and so now it, it does feel like TCU has a pretty significant opportunity to get another bid based on this win. They're 20, they're 20 and 12. Uh, you know, normally seven and 11 isn't good enough to get you in, uh, to into the tournament as far as a conference record goes, but this is a weird bubble year. Um, but something to keep an eye on, and this is, I've been having this conversation on Twitter all day. Uh, so Liberty beat Lipscomb in that conference, the A-Suns conference championship. Um, and that's big because every conference, no matter the conference, gets an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament for whoever wins their conference tournament. And that should have been Lipscomb. Lipscomb was the number one seed going into the tournament. They were the best team in the conference all year. Uh, and so they were pretty much guaranteed uh, a bid if they just took care of business. They didn't take care of business and lost to Liberty. So now Liberty has that automatic bid. And the question is, does Lipscomb get an at-large bid? Because uh, their Ken Palm and their RPI or their Ken Palm and their NCAA net ratings are right around TCUs. And they have a win over TCU. If you remember, Melissa, earlier this year, they came into Schulmeyer Arena and beat TCU um, in non-conference play. And at the time, that was considered a bad loss. Throughout the, the season, when Lipscomb was breaking into the top 25 of the Ken Palm, it looked like it wasn't as bad of a loss for the Frogs. Um, but now, when it comes down to it, and you're looking at both of those teams' resumes, and you're saying, uh, okay, well, there's a head-to-head issue here as well. Um, that could end up uh, theoretically going against the Frogs. Also, when you consider the fact that St. Mary's beat Gonzaga in that conference tournament, um, obviously Gonzaga's getting in. Gonzaga's still going to be a one seed in this thing. And so St. Mary's stealing another at-large bid really kind of 
uh, narrowed the margin for error for TCU uh, in all of this. And so I don't know that it's 80 to 86 percent, all that all that to say. I'm yeah, not sure. I mean, I think that the rough part about this now is I think it's a lot of it is out of TCU's hands. Obviously, um, winning against the number one seed in the Big 12 tournament could go a long way for that, but it also could be completely and totally negated by the fact that Dean Wade isn't playing. And so if the Frogs beat a, uh, a Kansas State team that's without their best player, that may not be enough. Um, I would like to say, for the record, screw Liberty, uh, <laughs> just as a whole. Um, but also yes. uh, that, it, that that Lipscomb is absolutely a tournament team, uh, deserves to be a tournament team, and I would hate to see that uh, be the reason that TCU doesn't get in. But that is a really, really good basketball team that's very senior-laden and that can, is the type of team that can go in and, and win a game or two. Um, and so I do hope that they get in. I just hope it's not at the expense of the Horned Frogs. Um, but that's that's where TCU's at is because they lost – to West Virginia because they lost to Oklahoma at home because they lost at Oklahoma state. Now it comes down to what does everybody else do? Because at the end of the day, these bid thieves, uh, you know, these, these teams that go in and win some of these mid major and low major tournaments could end up uh, costing TCU a spot in the dance. And if you look back at it, you can tell, you can say all you want to say about how good the big 12 is. That's absolutely true about TCU has 20 wins. That's a great point about everything that they've endured as far as injuries and transfers. But, uh, you know, there, there's three really, really bad losses on their resume that, that could have completely uh, taken this out of other people's hands. And, and those are the types of losses that come back to bite you down the stretch. They are. They are. Um, I, I personally think that both teams get in um, because it's a weird bubble this year and, Clemson's or lost to NC State pretty much means that they're out. Um, I don't know that I'm convinced that NC State still gets in uh, if they lose in the next round of the ACC tournament. Um, and uh, so there, there are questions there about them. Uh, we also had, I think, Nebraska lost to Rutgers today. So I tweeted out earlier uh, from my account uh, a couple of games for TCU fans to keep an eye on today regarding the bubble. And the first one was Clemson and NC State. And that one really, uh, whatever team lost that game was going to be eliminated from contention. Uh, I said that we probably, as TCU fans, wanted NC State to win. Um, it didn't really matter. NC State won by a point. Clemson uh, is effectively out of the NCAA tournament. The next game was uh, Rutgers and Nebraska. I know that Rutgers was winning that game in the last two minutes, uh, and I'm vamping right now to see if I can pull up that score. Well, let me while you're doing that, let me just say that the Big Ten, which people argue is such a good basketball conference, I don't it's know not. any of those people. But they, those two teams combined for, I think, 42 points in the first half. Combined. It was brutal. It was ugly, ugly basketball. The only thing uglier than Big brutal. Ten football is Big Ten basketball. Uh, so Nebraska did end up winning that game. TCU fans were were probably cheering for for Rutgers as a team that's out of it, and Nebraska is another one of those bubble teams. But Nebraska won. Um, another one of those games was Syracuse and Pitt. That game is happening right now. Um, Pitt is a heavy underdog in that game, but TCU fans, you want Pitt to win that game at all costs. Uh, and they are only down three, 46 to 43 at the time of this recording. So... TCU fans, hopefully you were cheering for Pitt uh, on Wednesday night, and hopefully they they hold on uh, or they 
come back from that small deficit and win. Another game that we were keeping an eye on was Providence against Butler. Um, this is another one where TCU fans really were cheering uh, for Providence, and Providence came out with the win. They blew Butler out 80-57, to 57, so that's positive for TCU. And then let's see, the last one was DePaul versus St. John's, and that game is currently happening as the, at the recording of this podcast, and St. John's is up on DePaul. Prague fans want DePaul to win. So, you know, the, there's still so much to be sorted out. That's why I'm hesitant to say that TCU is a lock for the tournament, even though I'm fairly confident that they get in, because you never know what's going to happen yeah. as these conference tournaments progress. Look, at the end of the day, kind of my feeling is, is that it's really easy to argue that TCU is a tournament team, but if they don't get in, I don't think there's much of a leg to stand on as to why not. Last year, yeah. I would have been really, really frustrated if the Frogs didn't get in. The year before, I think they had a pretty decent argument to make the field. Uh, this year, like, like I said, if they get in, I don't think anybody's going to say they don't deserve to get in. This isn't a, a Texas situation by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. But if they, but if they don't get in, I think that for the most part, TCU fans will say, you know what, I kind of understand the committee's decision there. Uh, we move on and we get ready for next year. Maybe have a chance to win a couple NIT games at home. Yeah, definitely. I, I I think there's hope, right? There's definitely hope, but sure. there's so much to be sorted out still that to guarantee it or to say that it's definitely not happening. Both of those are, are yeah. inaccurate claims at this point. Um, let's take a break, Melissa. And then we've got to get into uh, some of the big questions surrounding TCU baseball, including what the heck is going on with the bullpen. All right, Melissa. TCU baseball took two of three from Long Beach State over the weekend. Um, looked great on Friday and Sunday. Got absolutely blasted on Saturday, 14 to three. Uh, Jake Eisler made his first start of the season as Janzik still working through thoracic outlet syndrome. And he got absolutely rocked. Did you see that coming? Uh, no, not at all. He had been so good, um, so solid, looked so comfortable out there. I did not expect that transitioning to a starting role would have as much of an impact, apparently, as it did. Uh, this TCU baseball team has been really, really tough to figure out. And and I guess we kind of knew that when you consider all of the changes that, that they had coming in. But they had played so well against such good competition that, that I guess I kind of believed that they were figuring things out. And uh, this this week in California, once again, it's always these California trips that remind us that they're not quite where they need to be in order to compete at a high level. And a Big 12 conference is going to be an absolute meat grinder once again this year. It is. And, you know, I wrote about this on Monday um, that – we need to adjust our mindset when watching baseball versus football or basketball uh, because baseball teams are going to lose games. And I think it was Tommy Lasorda, Hall of Fame head coach, who said teams are going to win a third, no matter how good or bad a team is, they're going to win a third of their games. They're going to lose a third of their games. And it's really about what you do with the other 54 games in a season. If you're an MLB team, that's what defines you as a team. And I think that translates a little bit to college baseball, too. Baseball teams, no matter how good or bad they are, are going to win games and they're going to lose games. It's about what you do with that other third of your schedule 
um, that will define your season. And right now it feels like TCU is in that phase where we know that they're going to win at least one game, probably two games uh, in a weekend series. It's about what they do with that third weekend game and their midweek games because they blew a six to one lead against San Diego on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, that was a little bit befuddling to me because you saw Jared Janzett come out and throw pretty well through three and a third innings. And then the bullpen just absolutely caved and fell apart. Um, the first six runners for San Diego got on in the sixth inning and all of those runners scored. And that's where the, that's where the loss happened. Um, I have some real concerns about two of the most reliable guys over the last two years, which is Halen Green and Cal Coughlin, and neither of them seem to have gotten going in 2019. And Cal has been one of the just the best and, and most consistent guys out of the bullpen. Is, is a guy that can show a different arm slot, that can keep hitters off balance. And then Halen Green is one of the most consistent kind of lefty matchup problems um, that, that Schlossnagel can deploy against opponents. At the see the way they have both really struggled this season. If I have a concern, it's that. It's not about losing games. I mean, this is a sport where failing 70% of the time is considered to be above average, right? So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that that's not what worries me. But but when you have your veteran guys not getting it done, uh, and it's early, but when Texas is the first team that you're going to welcome in to conference play, uh, that's finding a couple more reliable experience options out of the bullpen has to be something that that's job number one for Jim Slosnagel with the, the preseason winding down. Yeah. And I think it's important to note too, that this was Halen Green's first appearance out of the bullpen. He had started the two midweek games prior mm-hmm. to Tuesday's game at San Diego, but he, he got moved to the bullpen um, in, in favor of Janzek, who's still trying to work through, work through some arm issues and in his two starts, Halen Green was great. He went eight and two-thirds innings combined in those two starts, gave up one earned run in those two starts, and struck out nine. So this is a this was a weird, a weird set of four games that we're kind of reviewing here because you have on the one hand, Halen Green, who looked great as a starter midweek in the first two weeks of the season, really struggle coming out of the bullpen. And then you have Jake Eisler, who has been an absolute force out of the bullpen for the first, you know, 14 games of the season. And then all of a sudden he makes a start and uh, pitches very poorly. Um, and, you know, I think there's something to having a shift in your role on a baseball team. Um, you know, the mindset of a person in the bullpen is vastly different from the mindset of someone who's starting and the way that you prepare day in and day out as a starter versus someone who comes in in relief, even if you are expected to go a long time, like Jake Eisler and Charles King have both been expected to do this year for TCU out of the bullpen. uh, There's just something different about being the starter and, and the way that you prepare mentally for that, I think is a little bit, uh, a little bit tougher. Um, and I'm not trying to make excuses for Eisler. He just had a bad outing, and I don't expect that to be the case if he continues to get starts on the weekend. Um, but maybe maybe these kind of midweek uh, or these kind of shifting roles are, are playing a factor here. Well, let's let's call it what it is. Baseball players are weird creatures of habit and superstition. 
And anytime you mess with their flow, there's going to be an adjustment period because baseball players are weird. Uh, and so, you know, you have to say it twice. Yes. Baseball players are the weirdest. Um, I feel like I'm being personally attacked here. This is a factual statement. Um, but this, this is, this is one of those things where you've got one series left and a couple of midweek games. And I mean, I will be interested to see if Schloss, I, I'm assuming that Schloss Nagel is going to go with Eisler again as the starter. Uh, but I don't know. Do you throw Halen Green out there Saturday night as a starter and then use Eisler back in long relief? I mean, he, he's become so valuable in that role and, and Halen seems a little bit more comfortable starting and he proved last year that he can be a consistently good weekend starter. So I don't I don't know if they continue to kind of tinker or if he tries to set what his expectations are going into uh, the final you know preseason series and, and tells Jake he's got to he's got to get it rolling now or never. So uh, it's it's a tough decision, but the talent is still there. The pieces are there. It's a manager's job to figure out how to make them work and, and maximize their ability. And so that's you know you're you're kind of running out of time to figure that out. But at least you have one more series to to play around and tinker a bit before you get into big 12 play. Absolutely. And the fact that baseball players are weird, notwithstanding, uh, you know, I think that right now, if you had said at the beginning of the season that there are really only five pitchers that you can trust right now for TCU, TCU fans would have looked at you like you were crazy. And one of them wasn't mm-hmm. Jared Janzek. They would have looked at you like yeah. you were double crazy. Cause I, I really do think right now that here are the guys that you can trust. As far as arms go, it's Nicola Dolo, top of the list. Mm-hmm. Second on that list is probably Marcelo Perez, who's yeah. had a dominant start to his freshman career as TCU's closer. He's been absolutely nails. Uh, the next guy is probably Brandon Williamson, who has been yeah. steady as she goes and progressively getting better uh, week over week over week as the Sunday starter mostly, except for the Saturday start against Texas A&M, where he was still incredible. Uh, Charles King. And even after this Saturday outing, I think you trust Jake Eisler still. So, you know, that doesn't include Cal Coughlin. That doesn't include Augie Milbauer. That doesn't include um, Halen Green. And that doesn't include Dalton Brown, who also is an arm that has really struggled so far for TCU this year. He gave up three earned runs against San Diego on Tuesday. So, or a couple earned runs after he came in to relieve Halen Green, who also had a really bad outing. So, I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where it feels like, feels like the arms are very inconsistent right now. And I don't know what you do to find stability, but maybe shuffling, maybe shuffling will help. I don't know. We know that the lineup is going to continue to shuffle. Melissa, I wrote, I wrote about this on Monday um, with how do you fit all of these bats into a nine, nine person lineup? Because they've got 10 or 11 guys that you want to see pretty regularly right now. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think that the nice thing is, is that Schlossnagel has proven he'll ride the hot hand, and with the flexibility that they have as far as position position players and and hitting and all of that kind of thing, if, if people are healthy, he can afford to do that, and so that'll be the key. Um, you know, I think we've we've consistently seen that Josh Watson comes to play. Johnny Riser is is hitting the ball really well. Uh, Austin Henry at second base has been great. Jake Gunther has been really good. Uh, if you can get some consistency out of shortstop and third base um, and, and kind of figure out the catcher situation, then the talent is certainly there uh, to, to give some run support as the bullpen starts to figure things out. 
but it's not going to be often that you can afford to give up a, a five or six run lead and, and win a lot of big, a lot of games when it comes to conference play. So, uh, it's going to be a gauntlet. Uh, Texas is really good. Texas Tech obviously is really good. Baylor has started strong. Oklahoma is not going to roll over for anybody. Oklahoma State is down, but uh, they're still really talented and incredibly well coached. Uh, if the Frogs want to have a chance to position themselves to be a postseason contender, they're going to have to get some of these things figured out. And unfortunately, they're not going to have a whole lot of time to do it. They're not because after you know, they play, um, they host Eastern Michigan. Uh, this upcoming weekend, which frankly should be a sweep or it will probably be a little bit of a disappointing weekend for the Frogs. Uh, and then they they play UTA, Texas Arlington, at Globe Life Park next Tuesday, March 19th at 6.30. That would be a really fun game for Frog fans to get out to. Make sure that you get out mm-hmm. to the ballpark for that and watch the Frogs Do you Frogs think they're going to have that seven-foot-long uh, chicken tender or do you think they're saving that for a regular season? Probably saving that for the regular season, okay. but it would be worth it to go out there and check it out because if they do have it, you're probably going to want to eat that thing. I don't know that I want to eat that thing if we're being really honest. It's, yeah, it's very unnatural. It's very you, unnatural. It's just a really big chicken. They just found <laughs> really big chickens and just took the tenders right off and fried them up like it's it's nothing to be concerned about you know what they say jamie just because you can doesn't mean you shouldn't stop to think if you should when it comes to excessive baseball stadium food there does not need to be any modicum of logic involved Mm. in your purchasing process well dr malcolm can come talk to me (laughs) i will set dr malcolm straight that's all i have to say about that really Veiled Jurassic Park references aside, it's a big week for TC baseball. It is. And, you know, like you said, it's a gauntlet right out of the gate after this week because they, they host Texas, and Texas just swept number one seed LSU and looks like they are all the makings of a national seed. Um, and you gotta get a, you got to get one, if not two, of these games when, when Texas comes to town uh, to really solidify yourself as a contender in this conference. So we'll see. We'll see how that works out. You know, uh, I was, I was uh, really thrilled the other day, Melissa, to see a lot of these videos coming out from the media availability uh, that TCU football had on Sunday afternoon, um, a couple weeks ago now, I guess. And we continue to, to hear good things out of spring football. Um, but there are also some big questions that need to be answered, I think, this spring, not the least of which is what's going on with this quarterback competition. And I have a question for you that I didn't put in the run sheet. I want kind of an impromptu answer. Um, okay. So obviously Alex Dalton is a grad transfer. There are some rumblings that the system at Kansas State wasn't best suited for his skill set. Apparently, he's a pretty good passer, and he flashed that a little bit in the games that he played against TCU. Um, is it reasonable? And I'm not saying that this is a, an exact comparison because it's not. Is it reasonable to, to suggest that if Delton wins the starting job, he could do for TCU a little bit of what maybe Russell um, – Wilson did when he grad transferred from NC state to Wisconsin, because the things that I'm hearing 
are making me draw like the lowest of comparisons where his passing improved or as far as from the numbers perspective, his passing improved. He was supported by an incredible running game and a very solid defense. And all of a sudden him coming into the room, things really started to click. So, so here's the thing we know about Russ and, and I don't know, I don't know the numbers offhand to, to compare this from his time at NC state. But we know that Russell Wilson is one of the most accurate passers in the NFL, correct? Uh, sure. I don't, I yeah, don't pay attention he, to that. So he, he, but he is a guy that is known for being able to put balls on the money. Like that's what he does. And that's why he's so successful as a quote unquote small quarterback is that because his accuracy is off the charts. Um, and that he moves really, really well in the pocket. I'm going to assume that Alex Felton moves very well in the pocket because he is more of a running quarterback. But where I would have serious questions is his accuracy. Uh, you can say that, that maybe Kansas State system didn't properly maximize his ability. And, and I think that would be a very fair statement. Um, but I've never seen anything that makes me feel like this is a guy who is going to complete 67, 68% of his passes. Um, and in order to be successful in Sunny Cumbie's system, uh, accuracy is a huge, huge part of that. And that's a big reason that Sean Robinson struggled so much a year ago is just accuracy and turnovers. So um, I would say that can he come in and, and be Russell Wilson? I think that that would be a hard, a hard pill for me to swallow. Could he come in and maybe do a little bit of a combination of what Kenny Hell did his senior season, that's probably more along the lines of, of expectations. He's not going to put up huge numbers. He's not going to be a guy that's kind of a fringe Heisman contender like Wilson was. Um, but can he come in and, and complete a, a pretty good percentage of his passes, not for big chunk yards, but, but moving the ball down the field? Can he lean heavily on a run game and a good defense and have a good offensive line in front of him that, that gives him a chance to win 10 games? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a reasonable expectation. Um, I don't see any scenario and, and maybe this is just cause we just don't know enough about him, but I don't see any scenario where he comes and he does for TCU, what, what Russ did for Wisconsin in that one, one year of play. So I think that would so, be a little more to put on his shoulders. Here's, here's what I'm, here's what I'm working off of. So for Russell Wilson's three seasons at NC state, his best season, uh, his sophomore year, he completed 59% of his passes. Okay. His junior year at NC State, he completed 58% of his passes. He got to Wisconsin, and he completed 70, almost 73% of his passes. What was his so yards you, per pass on that? Uh, yards per attempt at NC State, uh, his sophomore and junior year were 8 yards and 6.8 yards respectively. And at Wisconsin, it was 10.3. Really? Yeah. Huh. So... Not only were they airing it out a little bit more at Wisconsin compared to NC State, but he was completing his passes at 14% higher clip. Yeah. Now he didn't attempt as many passes, so maybe his you know. And so this is a this is a question of when a skill set fits a player a little bit better, are they in a position to thrive? And I think that the answer is yes. Obviously, I'm not trying to draw comparisons between Alex Delton and Russell Wilson. That would be ridiculous. But what I'm simply saying is I think that there's an opportunity, if Delton is the man, that uh, we could see a guy fitting into a system better than he has yet in college and us being pleasantly surprised with the results to the tune of 
Um, not a seven and six season, but more along the lines of maybe a 10 win, 11 win year. I will say this. I think that TCU's highest ceiling is a healthy Justin Rogers. But if Alex Delton ends up being the starter at the beginning of the year, that winning eight, nine games is definitely within reason. A 10 win season unless it's a very, very healthy running game behind him, because that's one thing that Wisconsin had was an elite offensive line and an elite running game. And I don't, we don't know yet if TCU is going to be able to offer those same things. And if you have an elite offensive line and an elite running game and a very high level defense, then it does become a lot more realistic to complete 70 plus percent of your passes. So I think there are more question marks on where TCU is today than there were for Wisconsin that one season of Russ. Uh, but I wouldn't say it's completely out of the question either. I, I don't know. I'm looking at TCU's schedule, and and I like the way that it sets up. Um, and I think it's possible. I do think it's possible. The, the, there are more questions, though, than just who starts a quarterback. Obviously, the, the highest ceiling is with Justin Rogers. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. There's. I don't think anybody else out here that would argue otherwise. I'm just saying, if it's Delton, maybe it's not as doom and gloom as some people are making it out to be. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I, I think it's fair to, to think they've got a shot. So, you know, I mean, they've got home games. Their home games this year are Arkansas, Pine Bluff, and SMU, Kansas, Texas, Baylor, and West Virginia. So that's seven games, six of which I think are extremely winnable because West Virginia loses so much on offense and the seventh of which is Texas and you know, TCU's track record against Texas has been pretty good since they joined the big 12. So, you know, I, you know, I'm just looking at the schedule thinking ahead. They also go to Purdue. They go to Kansas state, um, two pretty winnable games, at least, you know, it's, what is it? March 13th. So winnable games in March are a lot different than winnable games in, in November. But um, I don't know. I'm just saying. I'm just trying to find a reason to be positive about this thing after a seven and six season. I guess. Yeah, I, I just I think I'm going into the year with more tempered expectations to where being in the mix with three or four games to go and uh, you know maybe maybe have an eight nine on the table. To me, if if they go and they they win a game at Purdue in the preseason, if they knock off Texas again at home. Uh, those are the type of, of small victories I'll be looking for. I think 2020 is the year that, to me, is a make or break. But when you consider that this might be our last year of Jalen Rager, uh, it's our last year of Shewo and Darius, I mean, there there is a little bit of, of an onus on on the offense to have a big season and put the Frogs in a position to do something big. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, sorry, I am very distracted right now. Uh, I am watching a video on Twitter of Joe Kim Noah uh like straight up eyeballing and blowing kisses at some person in the stands in the middle of this Grizzlies Hawks game. So so does and, this make a nice transition to talk a little bit about Russell Westbrook? <laughs> uh it's not intended to. It's not intended to. Uh <laughs> I don't I'm so thrown. I don't understand. I'm gonna have to I I'm gonna have to figure out something with this video. This is hysterical. Anyways, um, yeah, Melissa, let's take a break, though, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about Russ Westbrook and a couple of other things that happened in the realm of college and or sports. 
All right. Melissa, I have a new favorite NFL team. Oh, no. I do. Can you guess who it is? Yes, I know who it is. I'm going to give you this moment. It is those Cleveland Browns. I am on the bandwagon. I'm fully on. I'm fully invested. I will still live and breathe Dallas Cowboys football. I will probably cry after every loss like I do pretty much every year, which is a lot of tears. But I am on the bandwagon for the Cleveland Browns fully, all the way. Baker Mayfield, Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham Jr. Obviously, we've got the TCU connection with Derek Kindred being a starting safety there now. So that's awesome. Um, Cleveland. Fun times in Cleveland, Melissa. Get on the bandwagon with me. So here, so here was my response today when I was talking to a friend at dinner. I have a really, really hard time rooting for Baker Mayfield, but I have as equally a hard of time rooting against fun football. And Cleveland fun is either going to be football. the best soap opera in the history of pro sports or the biggest unmitigated disaster we've seen in the NFL in recent decades. And so there is something to be excited about one way or the other. I'm not a big NFL fan at this point. I like to follow the pro frogs, but I'm way more invested in the college game. Uh, I just, for so many reasons, have a really, really hard time caring about the NFL. I won't root for the Cleveland Browns as long as Kareem Hunt is on the roster. And that's that's why I, oh, I have crap. I know. Forgot about I know. Him. Um, and and I can't. I have no problem with people who make millions of dollars adopting a win at all costs philosophy. I get it. There's no repercussions. There's no discipline to uh, signing horrible human beings to your team. So go ahead and keep doing it. I just have a hard time investing in a league that continues to employ the lowest of the low when it comes to. Uh, just basic human decency. Ergo, I can't jump on the Cleveland Browns bandwagon, but I'm certainly sure I will enjoy watching Baker Mayfield to OBJ highlights. Okay, well, I definitely forgot about the Kareem Hunt thing. So that's I'm sorry. That's putting a damper on my fandom already. I'm sorry. That's fine. No, it's for the best. That stuff needs to be named and called out. So you're right. You're right. Well, I guess go Cowboys then. They let well, it's not like a bastion of, uh, of human decency either. Because he's really, it's not a great dude, but, it, you know, it's fine. Like, look, And look, I don't, I don't have a problem with people um, separating the team from the individual players because if we had a reason to not root for anybody, we can find plenty of reasons to not root for TCU over the years as well too, right? So uh, at the end of the day, I think that people have a right to cheer for their favorite teams and that one bad apple or a handful of bad dudes shouldn't take that away from you. I just won't join uh, the fray of a team that I haven't been previously invested in that employs a cream hunt or a, you know, equally Tyree kill who actually does like sometimes second chances do seem to pay off and he seems to be a pretty, you know, like he's grown up a little bit, but yeah, yeah I just, I'll just, I'll be watching a lot of college football once again in 2019. Yeah, this is true. Well, you know, and it's, and you make a good point too. I, I think it's important for people who are fans of an organization to call out when they think the organization makes mistakes and not just like, Oh, why did you trade that guy? Like Giants fans are feeling right now, mm -hmm. but those Cleveland fans who are really concerned about the fact that they signed Kareem Hunt because there's a difference between true loyalty and blind loyalty, I think. Um, and blind loyalty true. is only beneficial 
to the thing that is holding the power over the individual. So, um, or the attention of, or the attraction of, or, or whatever word you want to do, want to say instead of power. Um, yes, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and I guess I'll return my Odell Beckham Brown jersey that I ordered <laughs> online today. No, Odell um, isn't a bad dude. He's not a bad dude. He's he, just, you know yeah, what? Anybody like who her. lost, anybody who looks like they struggled as much as I would struggle against a field gold net, um, True. you know, I'm, I have, they have a spot and I have a soft spot for them. So, um, my, my favorite tweet of the day regarding the OB, the Odell Beckham trade was someone saying, there's no possible way that a team that had both Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landy, Landry as starting wide receivers could possibly not win their division, uh, referring to LSU's epic meltdown when those two guys Yikes. were both starting for the Tigers. But that's not that's pretty good. Yikes. And, you know, the Ravens just signed Earl Thomas. So yeah. they're bolstering their secondary. And it looks like, you know, if Andy Dalton and AJ Green are healthy, the Steelers might be in last place in that division in 2019, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Well, it's I, I think it'll be interesting to see too. Does do the the Bengals make a move at quarterback, or do they give Dalton one last chance after he kind yeah. of struggled the last couple of years? And also, you know, Jason Verrett apparently is uh, meeting with the 49ers, I heard. Like, I guess huh. he's a free agent this year as well, yeah. coming off of an injury-riddled season. So we could see JV uh, change in zip codes as well. We could. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a guy who, when he plays, is one of the elite corners in the league. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of how often Verrett's been injured at this point. Yes, so. for sure. Um but let's be real. The entire podcast has been leading to this moment where we talk about whether or not this academic scandal has made me fall even more in love with Ann Becky. <laughs> um, because let's be real for everybody that's my age, grew up in the nineties and early two thousands, um, and was a fan of full house. Uh, yeah, you loved Aunt Becky for one reason or another. And now she's being arrested for paying $500,000 to have an academic advisor fill out her daughter's college applications and set up um, someone to take her SAT and ACT for her. This is the wildest scandal I've heard in a while. Yeah. As far as colleges go. As an educator, I have so many issues with this and just the widening gap between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to these quote-unquote elite universities and what the value of an elite university education really is compared to just getting your degree and going into the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's a disgusting system. It's been a disgusting system. This is just shedding light on, on uh, many of the problems that have existed in this realm for a long time. Uh, but but I guess if we step back from all the uh, socioeconomic, uh, you know, underlying racism issues here, uh, it's kind of hilarious that they were disguising these rich people who apparently had no right to be at these universities. I mean, Aunt Becky's daughter just seems like the worst. And, yes. and I, have a, I have a very yes. much a life philosophy that if you are following someone because they are a quote unquote influencer, if that's their job title, you need to do some self-examination there. Um, but somebody who, whose mom pays half a million bucks to get them into a university they clearly don't belong in and then spends her time posting videos telling how much she doesn't care about school, it, it, just, it, uh, it just curdles my skin uh, in such a, such a way. 
but um, that these people were rowers, that they were putting these five, nine kids as long snappers. Uh, and, and that I guess he's uh, from New four, Hampshire. A kid yeah, from New Hampshire. They've literally never had a blue chip recruit in the history of recruiting yeah. rankings. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, this kid's a long snapper defensive end from New Hampshire who's going to play at USC. Cracks me up. Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's 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 just a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. Um, it definitely, you know, those spots in those classes should have gone to someone who would have thrived a little bit more uh, in those circumstances. It's also shedding light and and bringing up a lot of questions about, uh, you know, just historically how rampant is this and is this really you know, one of the biggest, uh, biggest scandals around higher education in this country that we've seen in a while. Um, because when it comes to Louisville paying a hundred thousand dollars for a basketball player to come play there or someone paying $1.2 million for their kid to get into Yale. And then that, you know, you know, I think that, I think that one is significantly more impactful than the other. For sure. Um, the last thing that we're going to talk about tonight is another weird thing in sports. Uh, Russ Westbrook was fined $25,000 for mouthing off at a Utah jazz fan over the weekend. And um, Melissa, I've got to admit that I've watched the video. I've, I've read about what Westbrook said the fans said to him. Um, and I think I come down on Russell Westbrook's side. So he was being heckled by a couple of fans. Uh, if you haven't seen the video and he was kind of mouthing back to them and mouthing back to them. And it got to the point where he, he threatened uh, this man and his wife. And that's why Westbrook got fined $25,000. But after the game, he was asked about it. And he said that uh, I'm not going to repeat what the guys, what the guy said, but he, he said that this guy said some pretty unsavory things to him. And it brings up this whole question of how are, how are fans supposed to behave when they're watching a sporting event? It's it's ridiculous that we put these professional athletes, I think, in this situation where they all all of the expectations uh, are on them as far as peak level performance in the game, and then also the only expectation of decency is placed on them as well. Like fans have this out, it seems most of the time, to where they can just be like the lowest version of themselves in those moments and pretty much come away scot-free. Like this guy's getting roasted on Twitter and he's had to like delete his LinkedIn account and stuff, but this isn't really going to impact his life. But Russell Westbrook's been fined $25,000 and is now, you know, having some pretty unsavory things launched at him too. Uh, it's just, it's an interesting situation that we've seen come up before, but I think I'm starting to come down on the side of the athlete when I see these things happen. Yeah, I mean, I have a basic life philosophy, is it, and it's just don't suck. Like, Fair. just don't suck as a person. Um, you are free to heckle and boo and cheer and and all of those things. Those are all reasonable things to do as a fan. But if you're saying something that you wouldn't be okay with saying in front of your boss or your child or to a human being that you interacted with on a day-to-day basis, don't say it to a professional athlete. There is an, ex, an unfair expectation that these people, just because they get paid a lot of money, don't deserve to be treated like human beings. 
And I think that if anybody were to be on the other side of what some of these fans say to these people who, for the most part, are young people, uh, they would throw hands just as quickly as these athletes are. And the fact that, that Russell Westbrook showed as much restraint as he did leading up to that and in his other instances that he's had with fans, specifically in Utah, um, mm-hmm. I think says a lot about him. I- I'm never going to advocate that responding in violence and threats is the right way to handle things. But at some point, too, like when somebody sucks as a human being, maybe that dude needs to get his butt kicked a little bit. I don't know. feels like it could be a reasonable thing. Um, so did, did Russ, am, am I going to stand up for Russ in this situation and say that he handled it well? No, of course not. But is this guy on the other end of it a good dude? No, he's a piece of crap. And, frankly, he probably needs to get his butt kicked. And, and if he had to say that to Russell Westbrook's face, I guarantee he'd back down. Um, there's enough evidence out there that, that what, that what Westbrook is claiming he said is, is accurately what he said. And at that point, like, how much is he, is Westbrook supposed to put up with just because he gets paid a lot of money? Uh, that's, that's just not mm-hmm. okay. And, and, uh, buying a ticket to an event does not give you right to just be a bad, bad human. And I am, I am sick of justifying bad human existence because of, someone's financial state like that that doesn't seem to be fair play there absolutely i totally agree i totally agree and with that though i think this episode of the frogs war podcast is finished if it makes it all the way to the ears of you the beautiful brilliant fantastic listener uh then everything has gone right uh in a time where it feels like podcasting has become uh, more difficult for us thanks to the lovely uh, technology issues we've been having. So if you're listening to this, then follow these instructions. Go to iTunes, go to wherever your podcasts are found, uh, and subscribe and leave a rating and a review so that we go into the ears of more wonderful, beautiful, brilliant listeners just like yourself. And that would be great for us if you could do that. Follow us on Twitter at Frogs of War. I'm Frog Preacher, and Melissa is the Coach Melissa. And read all of the great content on frogswar.com. We've got a lot of good stuff coming up about TCU baseball. Um, we've got a lot of great stuff as TCU continues to make a push for the NCAA tournament. And as spring continues to heat up and we work towards the spring game, we're going to have more football content too. And as, as another note, um, make sure that you're listening to the Stats Award podcast that Parker is doing because he is packing those 30 minutes full of some really interesting stats work. Uh, that I think will make every single one of us a smarter and better fan uh, because we have that working knowledge. So make sure that you're listening to Parker's podcast as well um, as he gets that thing up and running. Agreed. And with that, go Frogs. Go Frogs. Go Frogs.